there's certain things that always emerge, right, in my novels. Um, so many of them are rooted in family and intergenerational relationships. What does it mean to, to migrate and then realize that one, what you've carried in one generation, like the parents' generation, is not necessarily going to look exactly the same as the life that your children then go and pursue, even though you gave up everything for them to have this quote-unquote better life. My name is Natalia Sylvester, and I'm the author of several novels for adults and teens. I was born in Lima, Peru, and my family came to the U.S. when I was four. The books by this Peruvian-American author resonate with many readers. Natalia's newest novel for teens, called Breathe and Count Back from Ten, was a 2022 Today Show pick. Her most recent novel for adults, Everyone Knows You Go Home, won an International Latino Book Award. I really do feel that being bilingual is the reason I became a writer. I don't know that I would have become a writer had I not grown up with this very deeply rooted fascination with language and the ways that, for me, it existed in these two worlds. In my conversation with Natalia, she explains how her bilingualism impacts not only what she writes, but the language she writes in. She also explores the connection between the words we choose and how we see the world. All of us, we're all the ones shaping language, right? Right. We're the ones assigning meaning to language. I'm Steve Levine. Welcome to episode 62 of America, the Bilingual. Even from that early age, I realized like, yes, language and words feel tangible, but they're often not. They are Mm. trying to contain meaning. When we look at words that maybe describe very tangible things like objects, right? Mm -hmm. That's easy to translate, but meaning of emotions, of phrases, of entire situations where we often have one word for a whole specific experience. In English or Spanish. Yeah, exactly. And both in any language, really. I think there's such beauty to say, I'm going to dedicate my art and my efforts to capturing as best as I can this incredibly intangible feeling or experience mm. with mm. words, with something as small as words. Is there a overarching theme to your writing? I always start out thinking there isn't, and there turns out to always be overarching themes that I don't realize I'm obsessed with. I think that's that a lot of writers can relate to that. For example, with Breathing Come Back from 10, I, I, I started out... Um, with a Peruvian-American teen who was, like me, born with hip dysplasia um, and went through many surgeries growing up and decides that she wants to become a performing mermaid the summer before her senior year. And she has to deal with her parents' expectations. She has to deal with ableism, with, um, you know, just feeling safe in her own body at the same time that she's falling in love. So let me... Let me just pause oh. a little bit. Uh, performing mermaid is not a normal occupation. This <laughs> is for a specific venue, right? Yes, at a theme park. Absolutely, yes. So I started that out being like, oh, it's going to be about mermaids. It's going to be about uh, like this cute love story. It's going to be about 
her and how she feels in her body as a disabled Latina and how she navigates her parents' expectations, being an immigrant daughter. And then it's suddenly it's, oh, well, this is also about language and the power of language. And this is also about agency and who gets to have a say over your body. When you said one of the themes in in, uh, this most recent book is language, how does that figure in? So at the top of every chapter, there is a definition of a word. And then there's a second definition, which you learn that this is Veronica, who's my main character. It's her version of a definition for that word. And The way that came about was actually when I I think I was nine at the time. Natalia told me she had just had surgery for her hip dysplasia, another surgery. At the time I was in a cast from like my chest to my ankles and I was being homeschooled. One of the assignments was to read David Copperfield. And in that book, there's a character who is writing his own dictionary. I remember at the time being so fascinated by this concept. It makes it go from language as this thing that you were never allowed to challenge, you're realizing it's actually this living, changing thing. In the story, Breathe and Count Back from 10, Natalia's main character does something that she herself had never thought of doing. She starts to write her own dictionary. At the time I thought, oh, I'm doing this because this is something that would have been cool if I'd done, right? Um, But I think what's really amazing about fiction is that you can leap off from the reality in ways that are really meaningful and that bring more meaning back to the place that it was inspired from. And what I realized is that language is really important to her because it is a way of reclaiming power. And it's a way of saying who got to have the say in what these words mean in the first place. I asked Natalia what words she would start with if she were writing her own dictionary. For me personally, I think often of the word left when we mean like opposite right. So my hip that has hip dysplasia is my left hip. And my whole life, even though no one ever said this out loud, I ended up thinking of things on the left side as defective. And it took me years to realize that is a horrible thing to be internalizing every single day. Rather than just saying there's a part of my body that is this way, and it's just a part of me as any other, that I don't need to keep putting judgment on it. In the book, her main character also picks a simple word. The word lame is one that every time she hears it, it really hurts her, as it does me. And it's because it's, yeah, we, we, it's used so often, right? Just tossed around as if to say, oh, this is something boring or uncool. I haven't ever used a word to only describe myself as if I'm only defined by how I walk. So I would never call myself that. I would have no shame in saying I have a, I I walk with a limp. Even that in itself is complex too, because, you know, within the disability community, many people will tell you they prefer to just be called disabled, a disabled person, rather than euphemisms like differently abled or, um, people with disability. I feel like the more euphemisms there are, it really just shows how much discomfort there is with just accepting. There's another word that has stayed with Natalia since she was a child. 
I just learned to read and I was watching my mom filling out a lot of paperwork. My mom was the one in charge of a lot of our immigration paperwork. And I remember the word that I kept seeing on there was alien. So I asked her, what does that mean? And she told me, that's us. That's because we're not from here. And it really was the first time that I had this disconnect, or actually maybe not even disconnect, and actually connecting the dots uh, of thinking, well, how language is used to exclude, because I thought, well, I don't feel alien to this place that I call home. And it didn't seem fair that I could be described as something so foreign as to not even belong on this planet, <laughs> um, <laughs> just for having come to this country. Natalia learned English when she started kindergarten. At home, she spoke Spanish. My sister, who's two years older than me, she was also learning English as a second language in school. And we would come home. When it started to click, we would come home and try to speak to our parents in English. And my parents were also learning English. But I remember when we were younger, they would pretend not to understand. So my mom's like catchphrase was, no te entiendo. No entiendo, meaning I don't understand. Because she really didn't want us to lose our Spanish. And we would get so annoyed. We'd like roll our eyes and be upset to have to repeat what we just said in Spanish. But of course, looking back, <laughs> I really do appreciate that. Natalia did not lose her Spanish which she calls her home language, but English became her dominant language, and like many heritage speakers, the language she spoke at home was not the language that she first read in or wrote in. I was taught to read in English in first grade when I was still not yet fully comfortable in English. So mm -hmm. I remember reading was actually incredibly hard for me. I was mm -hmm. sent to the back of the room in my mm -hmm. classroom because, you know, I couldn't keep up with the class. Little so did your teacher know that she was sending <laughs> to the back of the class a future famous writer. <laughs> yeah, and I think also that's probably one of the reasons I learned, I, I love to read so much because it, once I got it, it just, it was such a hard fought skill. Natalia did eventually learn to read and write in Spanish as well. I was in the International Baccalaureate program in high school. And That's a high, high honor. That's the real tough program, right? That's recognized around the world. So I uh -huh. took um, all the advanced Spanish classes, which was really fascinating for me because I went into it feeling pretty confident uh, and then realizing, oh gosh, these are all the grammar things my mom always hoped I would learn. And was um, that the first time that you were uh, reading and writing in Spanish? Yeah, because I've always known, like, I have a lot more ease reading in English. I retain information a lot more easily in English. Um, sometimes I get frustrated reading in Spanish because I don't read as quickly. So a few years ago, she decided that... I need to read in, in Spanish more. And what I realized mm -hmm. is that the place that I'm, I'm more comfortable and where I'm able to read more quickly in Spanish is really more about, like, middle grade. So uh -huh. books for, like, seventh, eighth, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth graders, which is fine. I'm yeah. not ashamed to say that. Not surprisingly, the way Natalia moves between her two languages has a bearing on how she writes her novels. She writes them in English. Or maybe it's more accurate to say she starts them in English. One of the things that I will do when I'm kind of stuck in my writing, uh, 
is that I'll, I'll start writing in Spanish. It unlocks a different part of my brain. It unlocks different emotions. I always have spoken about Spanish for me as being like this home language, this language of the heart, um, of these very tender, intimate moments, because that's how I experienced it in my life. And in moments of very heightened emotions, I often will switch to Spanish and then translate back to English. I asked Natalia if she could give me an example from one of her books. She told me of a Spanish phrase she used in an earlier novel called Running, which features a bilingual family. At one point, the mother tells Maddie, the main character, um, about, about people who are complaining to her father, who's a politician. And she tells her, se tienen que desahogar, which is a word that's, that I've always been fascinated with, like desahogar, because I don't think there's a proper, like literal translation for it in the sense that we don't use it in English in the same context. Because if you really wanted to translate literally, it would say, you know, they need to undrown. But what we really mean is like, you know, people need to vent. Any Spanish she adds to her stories has to have an important role. I don't put Spanish in my books just to be able to say, let me add some Spanish in there just because. My language isn't seasoning. It's not there to add spice. It is there because that is just the way the characters would express this particular thing in this particular time. Because she first learned to read and write in English, Natalia says that at times it can be challenging to find the Spanish word she's seeking. It feels like it's like a word that it's not that I don't, I no longer know it. It's just that I've tucked it into some really high shelf in my mind. And so I'll have to remember it's there. Nice way of saying that, a very high shelf in your mind. <laughs> And then it changes, right? Because if I go to Peru, I and I'm talking, I'm speaking in Spanish more. Then of course those shelves, you know, like those words come closer, and so I I feel much more fluent over time. Even though I have, I speak with like a Peruvian accent. It's not the same as someone who's lived there their whole life. And so if I'm speaking to someone at a store, they might be like, "Oh, where are you from?" Which is so funny because I get that here. <laughs> so you really, wherever you go, we're kind of stuck in these in between places. stuck in those places, straddling two cultures and two languages, adds to Natalia's power as a writer. I think that, especially in the U.S., I think that there's this tendency to loop all Latinx experiences into one homogenous experience when it is absolutely very particular and different based on not only race, but ethnicity, what country you came from when you came to this country, what privileges you had when you came to this country. Natalia experienced this when she and her agent were shopping her manuscript for Everyone Knows You Go Home. The story is about a Mexican-American family that lives in a Texas border town one publisher wanted more suffering. At one point, I remember somebody even used the word um, bombastic. They were like, we wish you would keep in some of the more bombastic border crossing scenes and leave out some of the more quote unquote mundane scenes. And to me, it just felt like what a horrible way of exploiting trauma and then erasing the beauty of ordinary lives that deserve just as much room on a page. So how come certain people get to be called human and others only get to be seen when they are hurting or suffering? But there's another side to this that Natalia pointed out to me. 
Because when we talk about like language discrimination, I think there's this implication that it's mostly coming from um, people outside the Latinx community. Uh, but I think it exists even within our own, because those of us who do not know and have not experienced that his- that same history of, of violence towards language, I have sometimes encountered this sentiment of like, oh, how could they not speak Spanish? I just feel very lucky to have both Spanish and English be part of um, my upbringing and my like how it shaped me as a writer. Also very aware that there are many people who didn't have that same opportunity, people who are also Latinx. To them, I would say that it doesn't, this doesn't make you any less Latinx. It doesn't mean that you're not, um, that your experience is, you know, any less valid than mine. It's just different. You said that you doubted whether you would have become a writer had it not been for your bilingualism. Yeah. Why do you do what you do? Gosh, it's like asking, why do you breathe? From a, from a time when I was very little, I remember being very fascinated by memory, by how quickly time can pass, and by the fact that what's left are just memories. And I guess I wanted to capture them. I wanted to make something that felt a little more lasting. What I mean by time is what you've made of the time that you have, what you wish for it, what you hope to create with everything you've been given, trying to make it into something that leaves a mark that is a little less ephemeral. And it just feels like I can't imagine not doing it. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Be sure to check out our episode notes on americathebilingual.com to hear my further conversation with Natalia on the Peruvian mermaid myth she discovered when writing about the mermaid heroine of Breathe and Count Back from Ten. You can read about my conversations with other fascinating American bilinguals in my book, America's Bilingual Century. Details are on the book page of americathebilingual.com. My thanks to members of the America the Bilingual team who worked on this episode, Fernando Hernandez from his production house in Guadalajara, Mexico, Esto No Es Radio, which also provides sound design and mixing. Also to Mim Harrison, our editorial and brand director, who wrote and directed this episode, and Carla Hernandez at Daruma Tech, who manages our website. Thanks for listening. For America the Bilingual, this is Steve Levine.